Good to see everyone this morning. I trust you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving holiday with your friends and family as you remembered and reflected on the goodness of our God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 for our scripture reading this morning, if you want to open your Bibles and read along, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. would mention, in case you haven't heard, that uh, sadly to say, Jeannie Alvarez passed away yesterday, and so um, keep her family, Ark especially, and the family in your prayers, and uh, that they would find their comfort in knowing she's in her eternal home. Uh, keep them in your prayers. Also, can you pray for our Christmas program? Kids are working hard, are learning their parts, and uh, we trust it will be an encouraging time for the saints and, and an instructional time and a helpful time to those who visit, who do not know Christ. I pray that they might understand um, the love God has for each one of them in sending the Savior to become a man so that he might die for the sins of the world. We're so thankful for that, and we get to share that in a couple weeks on Sunday night. So pray much for that program. Okay, 2 Corinthians 5, we're going to pick it up in the middle of the chapter here in verse 14, where it says, For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, Yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he, God, made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for the message described in this chapter. Father, as we've considered even recent days to be especially thankful for all your goodness, your provision, your care for us. Father, we realize uh, the, the greatest gift you've given us is the gift of your Son. You made him to be sin for us. Father, what a, what a terrible thought, yet what a wonderful accomplishment in allowing the rejection of mankind to become the path to the salvation of the world as you laid on the Lord Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Thank you, Father, that he was willing to go to the cross. And Father, we want to praise him and thank him. And even once again this morning as we gather to set him before us, as we consider not only his great gift to us, but his ongoing love for us, the instructions you've given us in your word so that we might know more of that love, more of what you've given to us in your grace, more of what you've provided for us in order to live uh, lives here that are safe and stable, lives that can experience love, joy, peace, and so on. And Father, thank you for your involvement in our lives. And we pray, Father, today that as we gather that you would quiet our hearts, prepare us to learn more. May we sit at the feet of the Lord Jesus as we sit at the feet of his word and, Father, to learn those things you would teach us. Thank you that you've given us. You tell us your spirit reveals to us the, the deep things of God and then takes that word and, and, and applies it to our lives and, and transforming us to the image of Christ. And, Father, we pray today that you would do that work, that we'd be more Christ-like. And, Father, we pray that we'd be, as a church family, 
not only increasingly grown together around the love of Christ, Father, but become increasingly effective in our witness to the lost. And Father, we pray even as we think of this time of year when we consider your goodness to us, not only in Thanksgiving, but also with the Christmas holiday, Father, we recognize the focus is Christ, the one who came to be our Savior. And Father, may we use these opportunities this time of year especially to share the reason Jesus came and this provision he's provided, the gift he, he is willing to give to any who would come to you by faith. And so, Father, teach us and embolden us and equip us for that mission even this morning, we pray. And Father, we pray this morning for those who have needs. We think especially the Alvarez family, for Art, Father, and for the children, grandchildren. Father, pray that you would bring them comfort today. They would be comforted in the, in, in the assurance of their hope of heaven, and they would be comforted knowing that Jeannie is finally at rest with the Savior. So watch over them, especially now. And others, Father, who have had losses, those who are going through trials, Father, we just pray that you would be a present help even to each one. And Father, we're thankful for each one who could come this morning. We could gather together around our Savior. Pray that you would watch over our service, be our teacher and guide now, we pray. May the Lord Jesus be glorified in all things now, in Jesus' name. Go back to Genesis, if you would. We'll continue in our study in the book of Genesis, Genesis 35. As we near the end of Genesis, we have seen some accounts in the scriptures of, you know, of both uh, enjoyable accounts recorded for us in the Bible and, and those that are not so and, and welcome or enjoyable, those times of, of the expressions of the flesh and the disaster it brings to our, to our lives. And as we go forward, we really have in the next few chapters a tale of two of the sons here of Joseph of Israel, Joseph and Judah. And while most of the rest of Genesis follows the life of Joseph, one who was used by God to preserve the family of Israel at a time of severe famine, we find one chapter in here that also records an event in Judah, a shameful event in Judah's life. And what we come to in that, in that chapter is another sordid account. We just looked at one recently, and we come to another account recorded it for us as an example of bad decisions, of, of how not to live, or what the flesh at its worst looks like. You know, in the Bible, we always find these two, these two expressions of good and evil. We find the destructive influence of the flesh, and we find the blessings, blessing influence of the spirit. We see it in the scriptures as light versus darkness, as sin versus righteousness, of good fruit versus bad fruit, of submission to God versus independence and rebellion against God. We see it in our lifestyles as living lives that support the great commission of being God's witnesses versus chasing selfish dreams and living independently in our, in our lives. In many ways it's described, but it's always these two. It's one or the other in our lives. And, and these accounts and instructions make it clear that we really have one or two choices to make as to how we're going to live or where we're going to live. Are we going to abide in Christ or are we going to abide in the flesh? Are we going to walk in the spirit or are we going to walk in the flesh? Are we going to pursue the things of God or are we going to pursue the things of self? The choice is ours. And the result then is one of two. It's very simple in reality in scriptures, though it becomes challenging because our flesh loves the things of this world, loves to be independent, doesn't like to be told what to do, doesn't want to submit to anybody. And so there's a challenge because our flesh always wants to go in the wrong direction. And yet it's made possible in the power of God. And the result is, when we walk in the Spirit, is, is fruitfulness. 
fruitfulness and contribution to the cause of Christ, bringing glory to God, experiencing peace, joy, and stability in our lives, versus the flesh, which results in a wasted life, doing damage even to the testimony of our God, chasing an empty dream that really doesn't satisfy and instead brings only emptiness, frustration, and destruction to our lives. And those choices are, are made in the daily decisions of life. Yes, they might be made in a, at a time when a person comes to face real, the reality of life and think, you know, I want to serve Christ. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord type moments. But those moments are lived out in the moments of life, in those daily decisions of, of who is first in our lives. It's always one of the two. And when you, when you describe it this way, the choice should be obvious. How we want to live is how we ought to live. It's how we are originally designed to live before sin interrupted our experience as human beings. Well, we, as we go forward here in the book of Genesis, we, we find these two men illustrate these two different paths that the believer can take. But before we get there, we left off in chapter 35. We're just going to cover a little ground today here and just kind of survey as we get to these accounts in chapter 37 and 38. We left off in, in the middle of chapter 35 and verse 8, and in, this next, in the rest of chapter 35, we find just a few historical details mentioned. We find... First of all, in verse 8, that Deborah, Re Rebecca's nurse, passes away. Then in verse 9, we find God appearing to Jacob again and reaffirming to him the covenant promise, the land promise, this land is yours, the fact that his name was changed to Israel. And then as you continue down in the chapter, we find the death of Rachel in childbearing, and she, as she brings another son into the world. And we end the chapter with the death of Isaac, and in between we find Jacob's 12 sons, which are the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel mentioned. And so we have some details that God's given us, and God likes to be thorough in his recording of history, because as we, as we get to chapter 36, we find the family of Esau. And here God is going to mention the, the son that was not chosen to be the bearer of the covenant, and we find here much of the history of Esau, and God always sees it important to recall record for us genealogies and to let us know where we're from and what history was all about. And some of the nations in this chapter eventually become enemies of Israel. And verse 1 of chapter 36, we find Esau, who was called Edom, and the Edomites were enemies of Israel. Later in this chapter, we find Amalek mentioned, who was an arch enemy of Israel and so on. And so we find here this historical record, and we're not going to go through all the names, unless one of you want to volunteer to stand up and read this chapter for me. Um, but you get the point. There's a history of Esau in this chapter. And as we get to chapter 37 then, we are introduced to Joseph. And, and we're going to follow the story of Joseph. It covers most of the rest of the book of Genesis. It begins in chapter 37, then it's interrupted in chapter 38 with, with this uh, event in Judah's life, and then it continues in chapter 39 through verse chapter 50 through the rest of the chapter. So before we get into the story of Joseph, in order to retain continuity in the story, we're going to go ahead and jump ahead and deal with chapter 38 this morning. Not a pleasant chapter. It details another sad and sordid event, a really regretful event that brings shame to Judah uh, and his, his family. So let's go ahead and read here in Genesis 38 and uh, and see what God would have us to learn from this account. It came to pass at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. And Judah saw there a daughter of 
a certain Canaanite woman whose name was Shua. And he married her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Er. She conceived again and bore a son, and he ca she called his name Onan. And she conceived yet again and bore a son and called his name Shelah. He was at Chezeb when she bore him. Then Judah took a wife for his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. And Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and marry her, and raise up an heir to your brother. And this was common practice, to raise up an heir to a, to a brother who had died. But Onan knew that the heir would not be his, and it came to pass when he went into his brother's wife that he admitted on the ground, lest he should give an heir to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, therefore he killed him also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah is grown. For he said, Lest he also die like his brothers. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. Now in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. And Judah was comforted and went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And was told Tamar, saying, Look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, and wrapped herself, and sat in an open place which was on the way to Timnah, for she saw that Shelah was grown, and she was not given to him as wife. When Judah saw her, he, he thought she was a harlot, because she had covered her face. Then he turned to her by the way and said, Please let me come in to you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. So she said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? And he said, I will send a young goat from the flock. So she said, Will you give me a pledge till you send it? Then he said, What pledge shall I give you? So she said, Your signet and cord and your staff that is in your hand. Then he gave him to her, and he went into her, and she conceived by him. And so she arose and went away and laid aside her veil and put on the garments of her widowhood. And Judah sent the young goat by the hand of his friend Adulamite to receive his pledge from the woman's hand, but he did not find her. Then he asked the men of the place, saying, Where is the harlot who was op openly by the roadside? And they said, There was no harlot in this place. So he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. Also the men of the place said, There was no harlot in this place. Then Judah said, Let her take them for herself, lest we be shamed. For I sent this young goat, and you have not found her. And it came to pass about three months after that Judah was told, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is with child by harlotry. So Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. When she was brought out, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, By the man to whom these things belong, I am with child. And she said, Please determine who these are, the signet, the cord, and the staff. So Judah acknowledged them and said, She has been more righteous than I, because I did not give her to Shelah, my son, and he never knew her again. Now it came to pass at the time for giving birth that, behold, twins were in her womb. And so it was when she was giving birth that the one put out his hand, and the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But then it happened, as he drew back his hand, that his brother came out unexpectedly, and she said, How did you break through? This breach be upon you. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward his brother came out, who's had the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Now history is not always pretty, is it? You know, sometimes one wonders why God records these so blatantly and honestly. But God does record the good with the bad, just an honest record of history. But in this ugly account, there are lessons here. We, we might rather leave these shameful things unspoken. Deception, immorality, dishonesty, rebellion against God. But God puts them in scriptures for a reason. 
And maybe one of the, some of those reasons is to learn about ourselves and our flops and failures. To remind us, first of all, that how, just how broken this world is, when it, especially when it lives apart from the, under the influences of, of our God. You know, we see repeatedly through Scripture the depravity of mankind and the resulting effects when it operates in the flesh, outside of God's directions and guidance. We even look at biblical history and we think back to the flood. You know, why did God judge at the flood? Because Genesis 6, 5 says the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Well, then we find Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. But that was the state of mankind. It had gotten so bad that God says, okay, we're, we're, we're through with mankind until Noah found grace. And then he destroyed that world with a flood. What a tragic event. You think of the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. Of that, God says in Genesis 18.20, the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave. We think through the history of Israel and all the kings they had, many good but many wicked kings. One of those was the worst of those was Ahab. In 1 Kings 16.30 says, Now Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. You know, shortly after that, some years later, that the nation of Israel was defeated by the Assyrians, taken captive and never to exist again as a nation because of their sin. It has a, sin has a terrible consequence. We find it throughout history. We could, we could go back to the New Testament, to the, re, the rejection of the Creator. His own did not receive Him, didn't want to acknowledge Him as their Creator. Look at modern history. All the evils of mankind, that, 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 all the ethnic cleansing. You know, we think even the Crusades, the persecution of the Reformation, the Holocaust, just to name a few. And today, history repeats itself over and over again. Our headlines are not so much different than these events in the past. Add to that, we find the increasing persecution against Christians and the hate around the world towards one person upon another. We find moral decline in our culture is rampant, normal, and expected. What one, which once was said in secret is now promoted openly. We're in a terrible shape, but it's all because of a departure from the things of God. And maybe God records these accounts to remind us it's always been this way because there is one common thread. It's the flesh. It's the influence of sin in our lives. You know, in the tribulation to come, we find this terrible time when God judges this ungodly world for turning from Him. And Revelation 6, 17 says, For the great day of His wrath has come, and who is able to stand? It'll be a great day of His wrath as He judges this world for its rejection. And for, throughout Scripture, we see the consequences of sin. And maybe there's so much of that both in biblical history and modern history, that God wants us to wake up, to realize when I make a decision in day-to-day-to-day in those momentary decisions we talked about to pursue my flesh and to ignore the things of God, there's going to be a consequence. The problem is you and I don't see the immediate consequence, do we? We see the immediate thrill or reward that we think that this, this sinful decision is going to offer. God knows the path down the road, and he warns us about reaping, sowing to the flesh and reaping its consequence. Now, we might rather put on rose-colored glasses and ignore the reality of the presence of evil in humanity. Many like to do that, don't like to think about it, talk about it, but it is reality. We could just, instead, we should just be honest and recognize that we as humankind are broken and sinful, just like the Bible teaches. Revelation, excuse me, Romans 3, verses 10 through 12. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seek after God. They have all turned aside. 
But if together become unprofitable, there is none who does good, no, not one. Now, we don't always like this verse because in our human experience, we've, we've developed a, a morality, a human morality which, of things in, in any given period of time in history which are acceptable and those which are not. And if we live under this loose <coughs> excuse me, this loose system of man-made morality, we, we're okay with God. We are good. We do think there is those who are good and human good, but God says there's none good when they live apart from God. There's none, period. And that's what the Bible describes. So we find this concept of the, the fact that, as Paul discovered in Romans 7, that evil is present with me, both exampled in the Scriptures and taught in the Scriptures. And that's depressing. That's bad news. But that's reality. But we also have the good news, don't we? Let's go to 2 Corinthians 5, our scripture reading this morning. Let's go ahead and flip over there. The good news is God's going to step in and give us some help. Because what we find throughout our human experience is that we have this condition called sin, if you want to call it a sickness, a disease, a condition, that's present with us that we can't escape. <coughs> Excuse me. We can't overcome its its effects. We, we are weak to resist its allurements and temptations. And we just have this propensity to always do our own thing, go our own way. That's why today's idea of, of, of there's no absolute truth and there's no absolute standard of righteousness is very convenient because it allows me to establish my own truth, my own righteousness, and somehow fool myself into thinking I'm okay. Not recognizing that God warns us that what's going to occur is what we see in the headlines today. That's the constant result. That's the consequence. And when you and I contribute to the flesh, we contribute to the worldwide expression of the flesh in reality. But God has intervened. 1 Peter 1.18 says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with, from, with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by traditions from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. God's going to redeem us. He's going to purchase us out of that condition through the blood of Christ is what he accomplished on the cross. And that's why it says here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it tells us that, verse 19, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. He's, he was in Christ. God took the initiative to intervene for, intervene for our problem, and that's because of God's great love for us. You know, the love of God is an amazing topic. He's loved us with an everlasting love. He's God so loved the world. And I think sometimes we forget how special we are to God. Now, I want to distinguish the fact that we may be depraved because of sin. We may not have anything to offer God. We may not have the ability to please God, but we were created by God, uniquely and wonderfully, the Bible tells us. And we're special. We're his special people. He puts a lot of focus on us, not because we deserve it, because he's chose to in his grace and in his love. We have, we have value and worth to him. And it's not because he just can't resist us because we're such wonderful people. It's simply the fact that he's, he created us, he values us, and he wants us to enjoy his love and respond in love to him. We're special. And that's why in the Bible, we're taught throughout the Bible to treat people with integrity and with kindness, with consideration, because we're all created in the image of God. And when a person becomes a Christian, he's created spiritually in the image and likeness of God. We're to reflect his image. That's why in James, it warns us about slander. He says, because the people you're slandering were created in his image. So be careful, the Bible says. God doesn't condone that. Because we're special, created in his image. That's where our worth comes from. Our worth does not come from what you can accomplish in life. Sports, on the job, in your hobbies, 
scientifically, academically, whatever. Your worth comes because God values you. Because he created you and he recreated you in Christ if you're a Christian as a new creation, as it says in verse 17. And we're special to God. And, that's, and that was all God's doing because God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. He's rescuing us. He wants to reconcile us back to himself so that we might experience his goodness. So we might know what it means to walk in the alternative versus the flesh that we can have the Spirit of God dwelling in us, the Word of God guiding us, Jesus leading us, God fathering us. Isaiah 55, 7 says, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And he does that because the end of this chapter, chapter 5, says this message of reconciliation that we have is that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Simple. God the Father made him, Jesus, to be sin for us on the cross. Who knew no sin, he didn't deserve it, but in turn that we might become or be made the righteousness of God in him. And we stand as believers in the righteousness of Christ. That's quite a rescue plan. That's the good news. That God sought to rescue us. But God also wants to, in turn then, use us. And one of the interesting side notes of the chapters we're looking at is that God, in his grace, uses people who are sinful and broken, but saved and right with him. In fact, even in this account, he used these folks mentioned in Genesis 38 in, the, in, the, in providing for us the Messiah. You know, in Genesis, excuse me, Matthew 1, 3, in the genealogy of Christ, four of these folks in Genesis 38 are mentioned. Judah, Perez, Z- Zerah, and Tamar. They're all mentioned. They were part of the line of Christ. Because God chose to provide for us the Messiah through the family of Judah. We also recognize that Jesus is from that family line. And Revelation 5.5 5 says, But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. So Jesus came through that tribe. In fact, David is mentioned here, and we know that David, who was of the family of Judah, a descendant of Judah, was, was given by God the Davidic covenant, the promise to have an everlasting kingdom. And Isaiah 9, 7 says of the Lord Jesus, of the increase of his government, and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with just judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. Zeal the Lord of hosts will perform this. That was a prophecy in Isaiah 9, 7. In Luke 1, 32, it says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. So through this family who made terrible mistakes and tragedies, God used that family to provide for us the Savior, the Messiah, the King of Kings. And so it's clear that God in his grace throughout history has used broken people. You see, God uses the willing, not the accomplished. He knows we're, we're our frame, it says in Psalm 103. He knows we're dust. He knows we, we have a lot of growing to do, so to speak, and that we fall far short of the, of the uh, example of Christ. But God uses us anyway while he works to make us more like Christ. And that's why it's important as Christians, or as people, first to recognize our weakness. We need to recognize that as uh, as unsaved, 
that we are unable to rescue ourselves. We're unable to escape hell and its condemnation. But that's why God was in Christ, reconciling the world. There's a solution. God stepped in and provided for us a Savior. But just in the same manner, you and I need to recognize in our Christian lives, if we're going to be used by God, if we're going to enjoy the things of God, if we're going to reflect the glory of God, we need to recognize our weakness, our inabilities, our brokenness, and that God will use us in spite of ourselves. So many Christians think they've got to get their act together before they can use by God. And while they may need to get their relationship with God together, none of us serve because we're qualified. We serve because God qualifies us. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And maybe this can say it better than I'm trying to say it. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 speaks to this topic. Let's start with verse 18 here. It says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. So what God is saying, he says, I'm going to destroy those who are self-reliant, those who think they can obtain heaven on their own. Boy, the Spirit's moving today. Just kidding. I hope you didn't take me seriously. <laughs> so God wants to, first of all, he recognizes that in order to bring people to a place of dependence upon him, they have, to, he, they have to be humbled, is what he's saying here. Let's go on. Verse 20, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? These are the educated. Where is the disputer of this age? Has not gave God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Because, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom or its own wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And he's saying, where are the educated? Whether, they're, whether they are secular or religious, where are those who think in their own wisdom they could find God? They could find nirvana or experience eternity or karma or whatever else everybody's seeking after in their own wisdom. And he says, they're not getting there. And in God's eyes, that's foolishness because there is a problem in our lives that separates us from the power of God, and that's sin that has to be resolved and dealt with in our lives. And, and he said, instead, God used a foolish message. The message means simple in reality. Foolish to the world, but simple to us. It's believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That's simple, isn't it? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. A lot of people think that message is ridiculous. I find it interesting I recognized the other day you know, a little Christmas thing going on on TV. I don't know what it was. But it hit me that people celebrate Christmas and not Christ. People get all festive because it's a festive season. It's a time to party and, you know, all the all giving gifts and all these events to get together and socialize and all the stuff that goes with it, all the festivities, all the food. And we celebrate the holiday rather than the Christ you know, in human experience, don't we? Because people think the message of Christ is really foolishness. And it just amazes me that they can celebrate the birthday of a person they don't even know. They don't even know why he came. But God says it's a simple message. It's foolishness to the world, but it, it is the power of God. Verse 22 goes on to say, the Jews request a sign. And now the Jews were assigned people. They wanted to see some type of miracle or sign of the, of, of, of the reality of God. 
The Greeks seek after wisdom, and they were the Greeks are the pursuit of wisdom and philosophy and all that went with it. But we preach a simple message, Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block. They stumbled over it because it was too simple. And to the Greeks, foolishness. It wasn't, it wasn't academic. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, or Jews and Gentiles, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The foolishness of God, or the simplicity of the message, this foolish, simple message, is stronger than man. Man's best could not get man to heaven, but the simple message of salvation through Christ, the weakness of God, allowing his son to be rejected and crucified, provided for us a, a message that saves and transforms lives. So the lesson going on for you and I then in verse 26 says, For you see your calling, brethren. He's turning to the believers. You see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Because God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. And in the base things of the world, and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not or nothing to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are you in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. And so God uses the foolish. Now it doesn't mean that that the educated and accomplished can't get saved. It just means that they have to recognize that before God they have nothing to bring, nothing to offer, that we're weak in the flesh, that we are spiritually weak and incapable, and that's who God uses. And if we're honest with ourselves, we all fit this category. When we assert our pride, we think we fit the second category, that we can do it myself. And I put my spiritual thumbs on my spiritual suspenders and say like the little kids say, me do it myself before God. But we recognize honesty of it, that we are broken, that we are sinful, that we are weak in the flesh, that we don't have the ability to, to change ourselves. In fact, you know, coming up New Year's resolution should remind us of that. And when we're honest with that, is the beginning of tapping into the power of God. Because as the unsaved have to acknowledge the fact that they're hopelessly lost in order to be gloriously saved and put their trust in Christ. The saved have to realize we're hopelessly weak in order to begin to tap into the power of God because no flesh is going to glory in his presence. That's what God says. No flesh. You see, sin has made us inverted, internal, and has created a pride in our accomplishments and think that we can do it. But God says, no flesh is going to glory. Galatians 6 tells us as well, that we, if I'm going to glory, I'm going to glory in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it's through him we find salvation. It's through him we find ability and power to live as we ought. And so in reality, you can take the weakest here, the, the, the despised and base things of the world, who's willing to give the most educated person, John 3.16, and the power of God goes to work. That's who God uses. And if we want to be used by God, we have to take, take that reality as our reality. We have to take God's evaluation of ourselves in order to begin to enjoy his power. Let's go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Here, where this is. Let's look at a couple passages here. 
Verse 14. says this, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death, to the other the aroma of life leading to life, and who is sufficient for these things? And so Paul here mentions the ministry in the sense that we are to be the aroma of Christ, the light of Christ, the testimony of Christ that is gonna, supposed to have an effect on the world. To one, we bring conviction, the aroma of death to death. To another, we bring encouragement, life to life. That's our responsibility. And that's one of the problems in the church today is, is that in many cases our light has gone out, the aroma has gone away if it hasn't turned to a stink. Because we're here to make a difference in the world. We're not here to be accepted by the world, to be embraced by the world, unless someone wants to embrace the gospel of Christ. We're to stand for truth in this world. We're to look at our relationships in life and thinking, am I bringing to these people the knowledge of Jesus Christ or am I just being their friend? And it's good to be friendly, but we've fallen for that deception to think that all we have to do is be nice and friendly. Well, how friendly is it to let people go to hell and not share with them the good news of salvation, of rescue from eternal hell? That's what we're to do, and we're to do it graciously and gently and lovingly, maybe in a relationship. But we're to be that light. We're to give that aroma of Christ and bring them to to Christ, but then the, he goes on to ask the question here, who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient? He goes on to say, if we are not as so many peddling the word of God, but of sincerity, that as from God we speak in the sight of Christ. And so he goes on in verse 1 of chapter 3 and says, do we begin to commend ourselves? Or do we need, as some others, epistles of condemnation to you or letters of commendation from you? Are you looking for my degree, he says? Are you looking for, you know, the approval of the world, a commendation from the educated elite and, you know, have my degree hanging on the wall and all those, all those to verify that, of, uh, that I have the authority? He says, no. The evidence is you are our epistle, known in red, written in our hearts, known in red by all men. The reality of changed lives. He says, that's, that's, the, uh, that's the, the reality, that's the authority authority is God at work in lives. Clearly, verse 3, you are the epistle of Christ ministered by us. We're the vessels written not with ink, not with a degree on the wall or a letter of authority from the officials, but by the Spirit of the living God. That's who's writing it. Not on, our, not on tablets of stone, but on, but on tablets of flesh that is of the heart. That's our authority, is when the Spirit of God takes the Word of God because He's the authority. The Word of God's the authority when He writes it upon hearts and changes lives. And verse 4 says, such trust we have through Christ towards God. That's where our faith is. Our trust is not in our abilities, not in our education, not in our oratory skills or our debate skills. Our trust is in the Spirit of God. Verse 5 says, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. That's our sufficiency. Who is sufficient for these things? Well, he answers it. I'm not. We're not, he says. And we might look back in history and look, see these men as great apostles. He says, but our sufficiency is from God. And so in order to get to that place, they have to recognize that they are, not, they are insufficient. And that's the key to, to the path to strengthen our lives. To recognize we need the Lord every minute of every day. And that we live in dependence upon him and the wonderful thing is just like the gospel. When we're willing to acknowledge our sinfulness and embrace Christ's provision, we can be gloriously saved. 
And as Christians, when we, when we recognize and acknowledge our weaknesses and inability and need of the Lord, we can then embrace his spirit, his word. And we can abide in Christ and experience his power and his usefulness and effectiveness in life and in ministry. Because it goes on here, verse 6 says, Who also God himself has made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, not legalistically, he's really saying here, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. He said, we're dependent on the Spirit of God. And so the key in our Christian life is for you and I to recognize our weakness. And that is, that is, that, that is a humbling, thing to, humbling point to come to. And in our weakness, we find we are made strong by God's grace and God's power. We find this example for us throughout Scripture, page after page, that we that admitting our weakness. James tells us if we humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, He will lift you up. And God has created us to walk in a dependent relationship on Him. That's how that's that's how our Creator's designed the program. It's when we get independent and think that we can live independent of Him and life is going to turn out just hunky dory that we get in trouble, and our world's in trouble today. How do we change it? Well, if any man be in Christ, is a new creation. One new creation at a time. As we bring the message of salvation and as you and I learn to walk in dependent faith as we live for our God and stand for the truth of God's word in life. That's how we avoid the mistakes of the past. It's how we establish a safe path for the future. Because God, first of all, in his desire to rescue us, would restore us by reconciling us to himself and then teach us how much we need him. And maybe these accounts we've seen, such as the, in these last couple of weeks, these sordid accounts of the events of the lives in the patriarchs, can remind us that just because we're of the, the called line of Jehovah as Israel is, doesn't mean anything unless we walk in dependent faith upon our God. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that you provided for us, Father, and it is a humbling thing to recognize, first of all, that we needed a Savior, we're, we're hopelessly lost, but also to come to that point as we grow in our faith to see we're hopelessly weak in the flesh. But Father, we, in weakness, we can be made strong. In a weakness, we can instead turn to you, and you have provided for that weakness. You've given us new life in Christ. You've given us your word to follow, your spirit to empower us, your, your Lord Jesus to, to help us. And you to father us, Father, for you are God who is for us. So thank you, Father, for those provisions. And may we live each day in dependent faith in you, Father, that we could grow to be the people you'd have us to be. So take these things we've learned today. Challenge our hearts, teach our hearts, and instruct us. But most of all, Father, may we be pliable and allow you to make these things practical and real in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray.